there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Off-leash exercise is vital to your dog's health and well-being, and with SniffSpot, all dogs can have access to safe off-leash areas. SniffSpot is an app, and it's like Airbnb for yards, agility fields, open acreage, and hosts are earning as much as $1,000 a month just by opening up their spaces to dog owners like you. Hosts have total control over the schedule, and SniffSpot even has their back on the insurance front, so the income is easy. Help spread SniffSpot by becoming a host, and when you sign up with the promo code COGK9, that's C-O-G, the letter K, and the number 9, you'll automatically earn $25 at your first booking. Let's make decompression easy and accessible for all people and their dogs. Sign up at SniffSpot.com today. I got a question from a listener, and I'm not going to read the question verbatim because kind of a paragraph with about four different questions in it. So I've pulled out, I've pulled out the questions um, and I'm just going to answer them because I think they're really, really important points uh, that she brought up. So the first question is kind of generally about um, agility instructors pushing their human students to fail. And in my listeners' words, um, that was in order to assess fluency. So um and her question is regarding how to handle the fallout, in other words, the frustration that ensues. And I'm not sure if she meant the dog's frustration or the person's frustration, but I'm going to address both of those here. I believe that really often um, in agility coursework types of classes, students are chronically pushed to failure. Um, The course that is put up is um, usually or often above the student's current skill level. Um, The argument here being that if we run courses that are much, much harder than what we'll run on any given weekend, then we'll be overly prepared for our weekend courses. And that argument's not wrong if the students are actually mastering those tough courses in front of them. So if you are an instructor, I want you to think about appropriate challenge levels for your human students because you produce unwanted behaviors in their dogs when you push the human half of the team to to failure. Just like with our dogs, we deserve an errorless learning paradigm. Um, And that does not mean that we never make mistakes, but it does mean that our teacher does not leverage mistakes. So meaning um, we're we're not teaching or learning through failure, rather learning through success um, is is the lower frustration kind of easier way to go. So dealing with the fallout 
either in your own confidence or with your dog, that would be where you become your own advocate. And if you look at the, let's say, 2022 obstacle course in front of you and you say, my dog and I are definitely not going to survive this, pick a section of it to do instead. Um, and talk to your instructor about it and just say, I want to minimize frustration for my dog here. And so I'm going to pick a part. I'm going to do, you know, numbers eight through 16 or something like that. Um, and then the other really tough thing about agility training in general is that really often we are asking the dogs to hang in there with us while we learn. And we'll do the same, you know, three or four obstacle sequence again and again and again until we get it right. And this is a problem if you withhold reinforcement from the dog. So you need to be reinforcing heavily anytime you are the one that's learning. You're basically paying them to hang in there with you. It's really important and not all dogs can do it even if you're reinforcing heavily. So you also need to understand the dog that you are attached to. Um, and then you also need to make sure that the stop start is not punishing. And I'm going to get to that in a second because of a secondary question that the listener had, but that also goes back to reinforcement. So anytime you need to stop and try again, you reinforce the dog. Instead, what I see is the person stops and tries again and stops and tries again. And the poor dog is here hanging in there with no reinforcement for a long time. And it's not fair. And it's also, it's not fair even to the dogs that can do it. Because there are plenty of dogs that will hang in there with you throughout your struggle. Um, but it's almost more important to pay those dogs for hanging out with you. Then you're certainly going to have dogs that just can't do it. And for some dogs, that's going to mean that they stop and get sniffy and they check out. And for other dogs, it's going to mean that they bark and bite and spin and just kind of spin into this whirling dervish of frustration. And that's not helpful either. So those are both bad things that we want to be avoiding. So if you're trying to work through a sequence and you can't get your footwork right or something like that, stop, put your dog away, practice without them, run your virtual dog as you should be your instructor, and then get the dog out and try again, rather than just slogging through that mud of failure to finally get to the relief of getting through the sequence. It's not fair for either of you to learn that way and you should be avoiding it. And if you've got a great instructor that's already breaking things down for you, um, value that. Tell them how wonderful they are and how great they are for being sure that their students, their human students are learning through success and not failure. So Next uh, question is, is continuing on course acting as reinforcement for dogs or can stopping to reinforce be punishing for dogs? So this kind of goes back to what we just talked about, which is um, making sure that the stop start does not become punishing. Continuing on course is acting as a reinforcer at some point because agility is this one long kind of behavior sequence. So one behavior occurs and then you cue the next behavior and then you cue the next behavior and so on and so on. So each behavior is effectively reinforcing the previous behavior. So that is true. Simply getting to continue turns into your functional reinforcer, your active reinforcer while you're running the course. And that's kind of once the dog is trained to do all the equipment and trained to respond to your cues, um, each cue is 
reinforcing the response to the previous cue. And because of that, certainly stopping the flow can be perceived by the dog as a punisher. Let's get down to the definition of punishment for a second so that we can understand what we're talking about here. Because I'm not saying the stop-start is an aversive, which it could be. I'm saying that it's potentially, or she's asking, is it punishing? She's not asking, is it an aversive? And so let's divide the difference there. So aversive is any stimulus that the learner will act to avoid. Um, and punisher is anything that reduces behavior. So if the stop start reduces behaviors of um, potentially paying attention to you, responding to your cues, staying in the game with you, could certainly act as um, a punisher. I have not seen stopping and reinforcing punish anything. But again, definition of reinforcement is builds behavior. So reinforcer and punisher do not exist, you know, do, cannot be the same thing. They can certainly exist on opposite sides of the coin of each other, and they do, but they're not going to be the same thing. So if you're effectively reinforcing, you will not also be punishing, if that makes sense. So, but if you stop and give the dog a cookie, and then over time, when you stop, the dog doesn't come for the cookie, the dog sniffs and leaves, then your cookie is no longer acting as a reinforcer, it is now acting as a punisher. And I've certainly seen that to be true, um, especially in the case of like the start line stay. I've seen start line stays fall apart when people reinforce them by walking back and giving a cookie because the, re the functional reinforcer that's at play here is the go, is the do of agility. And so you wanna utilize that reinforcer instead of walking back and giving a cookie. So back to our example of if you're running the course and you make a mistake and you need to stop and start over, that certainly will qualify as an aversive for a lot of dogs and then will punish some behaviors for a lot of dogs, um, which is why the stop start always needs to involve a reinforcement ritual for your dog. So I pretty much religiously, anytime I need to stop and try again, I give my dog the toy. And then we tug and we have a reinforcement ritual because I never just give a toy and take it away. Uh, we have our reinforcement ritual and then I go and I start again. And I'm always paying attention to my learner there and paying attention to the fact that we're both learning here, which means that I need to pay you big and I need to, every time you have that toy, you need to have it for a significant amount of time so that you don't feel cheated. Um, and that's really important. If your dog is a food dog, maybe you do a scatter and then a pattern game with food and then you start again. So it's a true reinforcement ritual and not just a boring cookie and then start over. We always need to make sure that our ratio of reinforcement is equal to the ratio of effort that was required. So if the dog is really hanging in there with you, really trying hard, um, and you're doing something that's difficult for both of you, you need to keep that rate of reinforcement very high so that the dog is paid effectively for what he is doing. And then the final uh, question that doesn't have as much to do with the last two questions, but it's a really interesting one, is um, she says that she's heard people say that, you know, when a dog makes a mistake, if they're asked for another behavior right after, which is something that I have encouraged people to do. So if the dog dog makes a perceived error. So maybe the dog uh, doesn't stop on the contact, knocks a bar, um, pops out of the weave pole, something like that. So dogs make dog makes a perceived error, stop, cue the dog to do something else, then reinforce, then start again. 
is something that I've said to do. Um, the question that comes up from her instruction side is that the dog quote unquote knows that they can avoid doing the hard thing because an easier thing will get reinforced. Okay, so basically the question is, is asking for an easy behavior after an error teaching the dog that they can kind of quote unquote get out of the original task that you asked for? And I just think that this line of thinking is giving the dog a little too much credit. <laughs> um, I think that they're, they're a little bit simpler than that. Um, understand that certainly if you see a pattern of pop out of the poles and come straight over to you for food, then you're probably reinforcing popping out of the poles. But understand that um, the only way that you can know if you're reinforcing something is to look at the behavior itself and is it increasing or decreasing. So like I said, if the dog pops out of the weave poles and comes over to you and does a nose target because they have consistently popped out of the weave poles, been told to nose target and then been fed, then yes, you are building that behavior chain and you need to be careful about that. But there's nothing inherent in the process that will make that happen. If you are doing your training up front and making sure the dog actually understands its job in the first place. So we shouldn't actually be worried about asking them for, we shouldn't be worried about them trying to quote unquote get out of the hard thing that we're asking them to do because we shouldn't be asking them for things that are that hard. We should be asking them for things that they know how to do and we should be layering the difficulty in there in such a manner that we're never asking them for so much that they just want to give up and come and do a nose target, if that makes sense. So does the dog quote unquote know they can get out of it? Um, sure, they can learn. Oh, when things are hard for me, I give up and then I get a different reinforcement. I have, I have had this, this conversation with um, a student I had just the other day that you can't continue your training session with dog gives up. You ask the dog for easy behavior, you pay the dog, and then you start another rep. This should not be happening repeatedly, you guys. When the dog makes a mistake and you ask for another behavior and reinforce and then try again, that's like a get out of dodge moment. Okay, that's not a planned moment. That's not a, I'm going to ask my dog to do something I know he's going to fail, and but my backup plan is to ask him for a nose target, pay him, and start again. That shouldn't be how it is. You only ask them for things that you think they can do, and now you're not going to be in this trouble. So if you ask them for something that um, you're kind of going, okay, I know that there's a chance they might get this wrong and my backup plan is to ask the dog to transport. So to do a sustained nose target back up to the, um, the start of the challenge, I will feed the dog for the nose target and then we will try again. That's a fine plan, but that needs to not be what's happening most of the time. What's happening most of the time should be that the dog is getting the task correct and then you are paying them. Where we start to run into problems is jumping all the way back to the top of this question, which is where the instructor's asking for too much of the student and the dog in front of them, and therefore the student then asks too much of the dog. And now we're all just kind of swimming through this mess of nobody being prepared for the task at hand. So what's really, really important is that the dog, you're pretty sure the dog can do what you're asking him to do. And so then if he does it wrong, your backup plan can be to ask him for something else, reinforce, and then either try again or go do something else, right? So like if I, yesterday I was working on some position changes with Felix, just sit down and stand in kind of various ways. 
Um, and twice in a row, he couldn't do the sit from the down. And the first time he didn't do the sit from the down, I just did my standard pause, ask for something else, pay him, and then keep going. But the second time he failed, I ended the session. And I didn't end the session and not pay him. I ended the session, told him he was cute, gave him a scatter, picked up the stuff. Um, it's not about punishment, but it is about, okay, Stremming, go back to the drawing board now. Because he failed the same cue twice, which means that that's on me. His understanding is not where I need it to be. Um... And that's more the way that we need to be thinking rather than I think culturally, especially in the sport of dog agility, we expect a lot of failure from our dogs until they finally get it right. We expect them to miss a lot of weave pole entries in the initial training of weave poles. We expect them to try and try and try and try again in, to get a final reinforcement. And we just shouldn't be thinking like that. We should be thinking errorless learning instead. And we should be thinking that way for ourselves. So if we look at a course again that we don't think we can run, we should break it down for ourselves if our instructors are not going to do that for us. So, and I'm going to end this episode the way that I will be ending up most episodes from here on out, which is by answering a patron question. So what is a patron? Well, um, as you may have heard, I've set up a Patreon account for CogDog Radio, and there's going to be a little bit more information on that at the bottom of the episode. But essentially, Patreon is where listeners can volunteer to support the podcast. And one of the perks of being a patron is that I'm going to answer these patron questions on the show. So this is from Kristen. And she says, in regards to muzzles, do you know how well dogs interacting with muzzled dogs are able to read their facial expressions? So really interesting. I've thought about this before. That is a big basket muzzle on a face affecting other dogs' ability to read that face. And I'm going to say that what I have, what I have observed so far, because we can't ask the dogs, so we don't actually know. So we've got to just go on what we're seeing. What I've observed thus far is that I don't see other dogs not reading muzzled dogs appropriately. So if one of my dogs curls its lips inside a basket muzzle, I witness other dogs seeing that and backing off. And that would be real easy to hide behind a basket muzzle if the dogs weren't seeing it, but they're seeing it. They're seeing it through the basket muzzle and they're backing off. Um, what is interesting, so the only thing that I have noticed um, is that Watson's kind of got an obnoxious behavior where he's running in the fields um, where he likes to peg some of the other dogs. And he mostly doesn't do it anymore. It was kind of an obnoxious puppy behavior for him. But if Ghost is wearing a muzzle, which she often is if we're out in public, he will tag her and tag her and tag her. And if I take that muzzle off of her, he leaves her alone. So he, through history, has learned that she can and will bite him without her muzzle on and that when she's wearing it, she's not capable of doing so. So he has learned that. And I would say that through repeated interactions, because we all just learn by doing and behaving and receiving either reinforcement or punishment for those behaviors, um, he has learned that there's an efficient punisher in place, which is biting for for tagging her out in the field um, if she is not wearing that muzzle and that if she is muzzled, that tagging her is a safe behavior for him. So they certainly will learn that 
that there are different consequences at play with muzzles on. That's real. But I have not seen, I have so far not observed poor recognition of facial expressions. And I think it's interesting to say that probably dogs read the entire picture of another dog really well. So they're not just reading faces. They're probably reading the whole body and the entire body language. They're probably also reading, um, scents that are put out through stress hormones in the body. I mean, they're probably just reading a fully different picture that we don't even totally understand because they're not as visual as we are. They are visual, but they are olfactory first and they also are auditory first. And so they've got these really heightened senses that we don't necessarily have. So my guess is that you remove a little bit of the visual picture, but they're still okay. In fact, my anecdotal observation is that dogs are more capable of reading a kind of normal faced dog in a basket muzzle than they are reading um, a dog with a deformed face, meaning um, a bulldog or a lot of boxers, um, a lot of pugs, a lot of French bulldogs. So brachycephalic breeds um, that have that kind of smushed in face are difficult for dogs to read. Um, And what I have observed is that those dogs have less ability to utilize facial expression. So it's not even about the shape of their face, but about the fact that their face can't do normal stuff. Um, So I have observed that and I have not observed uh, lack of responsiveness to facial expressions through a basket muzzle. But really interesting, awesome question, Kristen, thank you. for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.